HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. Did you know that Wisconsin wins more national and international cheese awards than any other state or country? To learn more, visit wisconsincheese.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Hello and welcome to Cutting the Curd on the Heritage Radio Network. This is your host, Greg Blaze. As a bit of a storyteller and a history nerd myself, I'm super excited to welcome Peter Gross to our show today. We all know the tale of the early human who left his milk in a cave and came back to find cheese in its place. As questionable as that origin story might be, there are many with a little bit more historical evidence. Peter is a self-proclaimed collector of cheese legends and listeners, so today we're in for a storytelling treat. Welcome, Peter. (laughs) <laughs> I love the intro. Thank you very much. It's lovely to be here. Yeah, man. So let's get right into it. What was the first cheese legend you came across? Look, uh, gee, that's uh, that's an interesting one. It's been so many years. I've been doing this for about 40 years. I 40 suppose. years? Um, my, my very first job out of school was in the cheese world, and... Uh, mm-hmm. And with a with a love of history, I think it was uh, it was just something that I took particular notice of. I I think the very first one was because it was forty years ago in Australia, and our uh-huh. our cheese industry as itself was just starting yep. to evolve, or what we would call our farmhouse yep. cheese industry was just starting. And and it was a peculiar habit of uh, of these goats cheese makers okay. um, wrapping their chev in ash. All right. And I remember asking the guy, you know, why, uh, other than it looks quite good, uh, the contrast between the white of the chev and the black of the ash. Totally. Why are you doing this? It doesn't really, you know, alter the taste. And he said, well, really, it's it's just tradition. It, it You know, the ash gives it a little bit of extra um, length, code length or life, I suppose. Right. Not a huge amount, but, but you know, going back 200 years ago before, say, refrigeration came yeah. in, every little bit helped, I suppose. But, totally. But the legend was the thing that got me, and the legend was, of course, that that in those days we milked according to the seasons. We didn't milk all year round. And the end of the goat season 
coincided with the end of the um, the harvest of the wine in uh, in, in France in particular. Uh-huh. And so at the end of the season, they would cut back all the vines, they would build a big bonfire, and they would have a big party, as only the French can do. Sure. Uh, except for the poor old goat cheesemaker who needed to be sober the next morning. So yeah. he would come into the... The poor man would come in to the... To the place, and he would collect up all the ash from the from the vine from the party the night before, uh-huh. and he would uh, take it back, and he would coat his uh, total production um, in in oh, this ash to, to, for two purposes: to give it a little bit of an extra shelf life, as yeah. I said, but more importantly, which is the part I think I love more, as from a marketing angle, it was to tell all of his consumers that if you see ash on on goat's cheese. That's it for the year. You won't see right. anymore. This is my very last production, and That's I, cool. I, I just loved the story, and it triggered in me a, a response, I suppose. And I've just gone on to, you know, delve into others, I suppose. That's really cool. Like for me, so I started selling cheese about one, uh, a little over twenty years ago, and the all of the objects were completely foreign to me. I had no idea mm-hmm. what any of this shit was. You, you know what I mean? Like yeah. I, I, yeah. you know, I. I knew cheese. I came from a place where cheese exists, but that sort of cheese, especially uh, French hand-ladled goat's milk cheeses with ashes on them, which I saw like Celsius Cher and Saint-Maur and things like that. I came to ask those questions because you ask questions when you get into it. You want to know the answers. And there was no manual on cheese when I started. There are some now, but there was less for me then. When What I heard is that that kept the flies away. That was what I, the yeah, legend that right. I heard. <laughs> you know? And, of course, there was no internet. No, well, that's my, none. In my day, there was no internet. <laughs> no, I, that's, the, that's another thing, too, and something that I wanted to talk about on, the, on some shows going forward, like information gathering, uh, taking a look at some old cheese books, like because they contain all of the legends. That's where I learned about cheese were these books. And the books are written, written by men and women who just own cheese shops. And so yes. they, what they told me was my Bible. So you, that was how I, that was where, you know, where it began for me. What's the most surprising cheese legend in your collection? Like what shocked you? Well, I'm not too sure about something that shocked, although I suppose in recent times, this one has come to the fore. And, and that is, we were sitting around discussing one day a little while ago that, that, that the UK is obviously where we all know that is. Across 23 miles of, of, of water, you have the English Channel, right. and then you can come into France, yeah. which is just the epicentre of, of cheese in the world, and yet without being too derogatory of our poor old, you know, pommy friends, there's uh-huh. not a heck of a lot happening uh, to their left, and it, and it's always amazed me why there hasn't been. I mean, they they do cheddars as we all know, and but but historically nothing much else. And and it right. came about from that, that this story that in in 1350 um, a certain fellow over there, a rather jovial uh, bloke by the name of Henry VIII, decided he needed a new model. Okay, and. Um, and and so uh, that wasn't as easy as going in and getting a new car. And so he, he had <laughs> nope. to get rid of the Catholic Church in order to do that. Um, sure, sure. Which, yeah, which didn't go down terribly well. No. And so the Catholic Church yeah, virtually as one got up and left England and went across the, the ditch. See ya. And back in those days, of course, you know, they owned all of the 
IP, well, we would call it IP these days, but all the intellectual property for sure. making cheese and liqueurs and wines and everything. And those are locked in the heads of the individuals that took the hell off. So you know, that's where all, all, all those monks, exactly. Yeah. And so they reckon that that's one reason that, that the cheese making in, in England really sort of started to slide back. Mm. And then in another instance, in, in about 1938, uh-huh. 39, um, uh, Winston Churchill uh, passed an act of parliament making it uh, illegal to make any other cheese other than government cheddar right. because he could see that there was going to be a war and that England was right. a tiny island nation and that they knew every single bit of food they made needed to be, be kept and saved. It couldn't be thrown out. And so everyone had to make cheddar. Interesting. I've, you know, I've, I've talked about a lot of English cheese with some of my friends from uh, really reputable cheese sellers in London. And I believe we've talked about that, but yeah, that makes a lot of sense because we were taught, we talked about it from the back end uh, where, where there were lost cheeses because we're just nerds about all things cheese. So I was like, where the hell did all this cheese go of this kind? Now there's only one maker. And that would kind of make sense uh, in a certain way. Also, I think a lot of those people were sent off to fight uh, because of the way that the land was owned and who had to go and fight on the ground there. But, Look, know. I think there's also some of those things. I mean, history's a great thing, and it, and it winds itself in it to really all those does. sorts of things, you know. And then certainly, you know, during the uh, the 1750s uh, the, and the 1850s, there was another huge upheaval in England, which was, of course, the Industrial Revolution, and Big every deal. bit of spare agricultural land was put to uh, raising sheep and wool to feed those woolen mills. Right, right. So, so maybe daring was looked upon as a as a secondary thing. But, but then, having said that, and another interesting cheese story is yeah. is the fact that you know by by the end of of the seventeen hundreds, I suppose. Um, you know, the, the great powers of the world back then had previously been uh, Spain and Portugal and their powers were, were diminishing, certainly to a, to an extent, I suppose, the Dutch as well. And, and the growth and the might of the, the so-called English Empire was, was starting. Right. You know, and one of the greatest foods uh, for, for exploration was, in fact, white meat or cheese. Yeah, 100%. Um, yeah, and, it travels and well. Just, you know, if I mean, if, if you look at at, the, at a map of the world and you look at the great, che- um, you know, exploration countries, all of those countries had huge amounts of uh, availability of cheese, and the, and the countries that maybe didn't do a lot of exploration really weren't focused on cheese. You know, Japan, I suppose you could say most of Asia, with the exclusion of the Mongols, um, most of the Americas, where you guys are. Um, weren't really renowned before you guys came along uh, with with widespread exploration and uh, with well, I no, certainly we... don't know of any cheese being discovered in in North America. Do you? Well, that's an interesting thing. Not not really. When when you look back at previous cultures before you know the wasps showed up and before my people the Swedes showed up and th- there there was. I don't know that the Native American population used dairy that way or that that was an no. animal that 
You know what I'm saying? It, that, yeah, I you got to go I've back into how society is set even up. So far down to the, you know, the Inca and the Maya who were. I just don't you know, see by all it. reports a very advanced civilization. Certainly. but did they ever make cheese? It's an interesting. That's a really in, interesting thing. I think you have to take a look at how society and how how Europeans basically started organizing this land into society yep. and what and what what derivatives came uh, came out of that and the places over mm. here it's so large that exploration was overland it, we were going west and trying to figure out how big the fucking continent was the other way you it, know from the spot we exactly, landed on you know so exactly right very true and and you know the same can be said for for my country, of course, you know right. Australia is not quite as big as as the states, but it's still a a pretty big, uh, a big chunk part of, land of the there. world. And 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 for us to explore new lands, we had to go west, and we right. had to also explore that you know, and taking our uh, limited provisions with us. Sure. And, um, I mean, another interesting story is uh, you know the very first fleet arrived here in Australia in 1788, uh-huh. which is. Just, just to give it a bit of history for you guys. So that's that's a year before your first president, George Absolutely. Washington, is sure. proclaimed. Sure. So, um, but they came out here with uh, with eleven ships. Um, that was all. But on those ships, interestingly enough, there were in fact six cows. Had to be. That was. Uh, yeah. Sure. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah, so, so they could see that they needed to have uh, some sort of cheese making or dairy making. Uh, yeah. Industry started up right from the word go. Thank heaven, someone in in England was smart enough to include a bull because uh, yeah, you need some sperm in there, man. You got to impregnate those um, animals somehow. <laughs> 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 the bloke still comes in handy sometimes. A little bit. So, um, We're not that useful, we, but we got to keep a few of us around. Exactly. <laughs> 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 and. And so um, a lovely tale, though, uh, to follow that up is that um, whilst uh, most of the convicts tended to stay around the around Port Jackson, which became known as Sydney, uh-huh. all of the cows and the bull escaped. And, and they weren't found for about six or seven years. Really? Um, in, yeah, in a place called, uh, which is now known as Cow Pastures. It's okay. uh, now a suburb a fair way out of Sydney. Yeah. Um, and they were found about eight years later and... Uh, an unconfirmed report say that there were about uh, about eighty to ninety cows, and one very very happy bull. I was going to say he got busy out there. He he really <laughs> he really got to do a, have a lot of fun. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> he probably had a better time of it than the convicts. I think. Tired. He was very tired. I'm certain. Uh, <laughs> so, <laughs> I have to ask what one legend specifically that you mentioned to our producer before the show. Quote, how cheese discovered the world, quote. What exactly does that mean? Well, that sort of was the link, I suppose, about what I just spoke about. Right. The fact that all of those great navigation, exploration countries of the world yes. all had a huge accessibility to cheese. You know, right. the, the the Dutch had the Edom and the Gouda, and, yep. and we know what the Portuguese and the Spanish had. Yeah. You know, really, the only... The only Asian country, to, to my knowledge anyway, and I'm not a historian by any stretch of the imagination, that really conquered the world to the left with, with the Mongols. Yeah, they, they rode over the and, mountains. Yeah, I, yes. That, and, or that's my and, understanding and they, as well. And were sustained by, by yak's milk. A lot, and that is uh, a terrible and, and, and cheese. And cheese. I mean, they <laughs> really did embrace 
a, a daring industry yes. and, and culture. I'm, yes. You know, I'm aware that in 1421, I think it was, the, the Chinese launched a massive expedition, uh, but it really didn't go, you know, off conquering and, and taking over lands. It just was a bit of a, a feeler, as right. my understanding, into history. But certainly, you know, none of the South American countries ever explored, to my knowledge, outside of their borders. Um, as I said, the you know, the Native American Indian population never did either, to my knowledge. It's different uh, society. Australia, the, the, the inhabitants here in Australia before... Sure. Before English settlement, never did anything like that. So it was it's it was only those big European powers, yeah. aided with with of course the ability to store water, which is a completely different subject, which is of course beer, mm-hmm. um, and the and the ability to store uh, milk into into white meat gave them that uh, you know the sustainability to go on those three and four year long epic voyages. It's amazing. I I, I see. I, I love that. And and when I started to work with cheese, it was and I tell people in this podcast, and I tell people that I work with, uh, the cheese has always been my window that which I looked out onto the world, and it and it permeates so many things that I find interesting, and so many cultures that I've been able to explore in an important way. That it, that it it's it's in there. It's really in there in their in their culture and all. You know, it, it is. Intrinsically wound into everyone's culture. I totally agree. It's way in there, and and it really mm. is. And in, in, in because food is important, we need it. Yes. And 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 that is a food that travels. I told uh, my my co-host Elena. We were talking last week. I said one of the. I just find the cheese is one of these only food items that appreciates in value as it gets older. And I just find that fascinating. I that's just that yep. to me that stops time. It just it's yes. it's very odd, like right, like it just. Yeah. yeah, no, look, I totally agree. I love that passion that's coming through from you because I I experience the same thing. I just think it's remarkable, you know, and so many things that we take for everyday, you know, use these days. For example, you know, if you're back, sort of two hundred years, a thousand years, two thousand years, and and you know the mortality rate amongst babies and women were were, were pretty high. If if a woman died in childbirth, um, if you were lucky enough, you would give it to another mother right. to, to, to raise and to suckle, hopefully. But if you didn't, you would use goat milk because sure. goat milk is, as we know still to this day, is very, very gentle and, and something that can be absorbed by babies. Completely. And so, you know, I used to call my grandmother my nanny. And, uh, and, yeah. and of course, anyone that looks after someone else's child is called a nanny. A nanny. And, uh, and, and a female goat is absolutely called a nanny yep. goat yep. for the right same reasons, hence where we get our names. Uh, brilliant. And that's a little tiny cheese legend right there. And we're going to pause on that and take a little bit of a break. And then I'm going to come back and we're going to talk to Mr. Gross about cheese legends and how he got into what he does. So stay with us for a minute. Today's program was brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. What do you think of when you hear Wisconsin Cheese? For me, I think cheese curds. Delicious, fresh and squeaky cheese curds. Or deep fried cheese curds. Cheese curds literally anyway, anytime, anyplace. I think about Andy Hatch and Upland's Cheese, the farmstead cheese company behind Pleasant Ridge Reserve. I think of delicious, stinky Limburger and its long storied history. I think of Dunbarton Blue, 
made by master cheesemaker Chris Raleigh. I think of Ross Grand Cru Sirchois, which was named 2016's World Championship Cheese, and Satori's Black Pepper Bella Vitano, the 2017 U.S. Championship Cheese. Wisconsin produces the world's best cheese, with lush grasslands and a glacial water supply that produce the very best milk, fourth-generation cheesemakers combine old-world tradition with new ideas and the highest standards to make innovative cheeses that win more awards than any other state or country. To learn more, visit wisconsincheese.com. Welcome back to Cutting the Curd, broadcasting live in the Heritage Radio Network. I'm here with Peter Gross talking about cheese legends, cheese myths, a little bit of uh, history thrown in there. We've been listening to some of uh, Peter's incredible collection of these stories and just his philosophy in general, true oral history. It's really awesome. In our second half of the episode, I'm curious to hear more about how you got into this whole world of cheese legends. Was cheese always something you were interested in, or does the interest come more from a general curiosity about history and the ancillary portions of it? Look, um, I, I spent a bit of time growing up um, on, on a dairy farm in Gippsland, which is the sort of the heart of our dairy industry here in Australia. Yeah. It was uh, an uncle's farm, and I absolutely loved it and always joked to everyone that I preferred cows, uh, you know, over dogs and uh, and, and, pet, and, and cats as, a, as uh-huh. a pet. I was then lucky enough, you know, I was growing up in a period when, when jobs and what have you were plentiful, and I had a choice <laughs> of quite a few. I chose to work for... Sounds great. Craft, in fact, a big American cheese company. Oh, yeah. Um, and in those days, you learnt the whole gamut. You know, you learnt everything from physical distribution to sales and marketing to production to everything. And, sure. And that also sort of tended to fascinate me. But then my biggest step forward was um, I was asked to join a, a little uh, boutique farmhouse dairy company that was starting up here in Australia in the early 80s, okay. which was called King Island Dairies. It was I know a, that. I know a, those guys. That's Art Gold might used to bring that cheese into me, right? Like, come Yeah, on. yeah. Look, and it was just such a fantastic story. You know, it was against all the odds, this little island in the middle of Bass Strait, which is yeah, the stretch of water the Bass Strait that divides Blue. Australia to Tasmania. Oh, yeah. Seal Cove was the other one, right? Or no, it was a couple... Oh wait, shit! What, what's Sorry. what's the name of that uh, the that triple cream that you guys used to do? Everybody loved that. Seal Bay. Seal Bay. Seal, Bay. Seal, Seal Cove is in Maine. Sorry. So, yeah. so every product was named after a location on the island. Oh and, yeah, man. Now, when you consider when they started, it was um, certainly in, in Australia. Our, our cheese knowledge wasn't huge, and 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 a brie was pr- probably pronounced a brie, and a camembert <laughs> was pronounced a camembert. Yeah, we still do you know, that no here. No one had heard of these things. <laughs> really quite amazing and, and we launched onto the market nearly twice the retail price of the real McCoy from uh, from France you and sure? yet we still made it a success and well, it just yeah. went on to become an absolute icon in Australia. Totally. That's great. That's great. I remember them. I'm sorry, I was referring to another, I was uh, I got you, I got that King Island mixed up with a different uh, a different Australian uh, company I used to do business with back in the in the 90s, but that's well, that would have been Jindy. Look, in those days, we honestly knew every single other producer in Australia because there weren't that many people doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so it may have been George Ronald's Jindy that you knew because he they made came a, to a, They made a cheese called the Hillcrest Mature. Sorry? They made a cheese called the Hillcrest Mature and one called uh, Blue Orchid and one called, uh, I think, um, 
Oh my goodness. Uh, he also did really, really amazing, uh, like semi-dried tomatoes from down there and, uh, and, uh, and yeah. peppers. They were phenomenal. That was some good stuff. Really good yeah, stuff. Yeah, well, look, the, the blue orchid you mentioned was made by a company in Victoria called Tarago, Tarago River, mm. uh, a guy by the name of Laurie Jensen. He was yeah, Jensen's probably, Red, arguably, they our very first farmhouse yeah. cheese producer yep. with a product called Gippsland Blue. Yeah, I bought, yeah, that, that was, I got that in Dean and DeLuca, like, in the 90s, like, like 97, 98, yep. around there. Um, I yep. remember that. Really good stuff. It's cool. But, uh, so you come from dairying background, and then, um, you know, you got into, you 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 got that first legend or that first one that that hooked you, and then you've just been collecting them ever since, right? I mean, that's look, I, I have because I, I honestly believe one of the best ways to get to, you know, I love cheese, and I and I think everyone should be experiencing it, and so one of the best sure. ways to do that is to talk about it and and go around and see people, and so I suppose I do a lot of of, of talks at night, uh, trying to encourage people to, to widen their views and to look at Certainly. cheese, not only from Australia, but from all over the world. Um, and it just, it, it, it makes your appreciation of wine or beer, whatever else you may be enjoying it with just so much more. And yeah. there's just such a huge world of it out there that it's, uh, it's a great subject to talk on. I just love it. Yeah, me too. Uh, the, the history part, as we were speaking before, I really have always, always uh, been interested in. I think the first legend for me that that hooked me I, when I was in. We were speaking before, like when I was in college and I was a cheesemonger. You, one of the best parts about being a cheesemonger was I got to collect the books, and there were so many mm-hmm. weird, odd little books. And this one book on uh, cheeses from the British Isles said this. They had this little cheese legend in the beginning that uh, claimed that I, I believe, um, in Vienna, that right. that the that a famous composer, Mozart or Beethoven, a Viennese composer, was in love with a Viennese cheesemonger there and wrote an entire symphony dedicated to that cheesemonger. And I was like, "Damn, like that's some serious shit right there," you know? Like, you know, like, my God, like, you know, like. So you like you think this girl at the shop that you shop in is cute. So you're like Mozart, and you're like instead of writing her a poem, you just write her a whole symphony. That's pretty cool, man. And if that doesn't get How you there, you know, <laughs> if that doesn't get you there, then she does not like you. You need to walk away from that, you know. <laughs> <laughs> not if you've got any brains about you, though. That's huge. I must admit, that's a lovely one because I haven't heard that one myself. But I, you can be you can be assured that I'm going to go off and research that one. I love it. Yeah, it's it's and and I and I'm. I don't know which composer, but check that out. I thought it was a, I thought it was a really cool story because I, I love the legends, and I mean, I should, I love to talk and and uh, and talk about things like that. So I'm I'm yeah. right there with you. So check that one out, and then uh, let me know what you find out because I've been I, I've been saying I that one for years. Will. You have no fear about that. I'll yeah. check it out. <laughs> so you also work with Black Pearl Epicurus, a specialty food distributor and importer. Tell us a little bit about that company. Do you focus focus more on Australian products or imports? You bring everything in. No, look, we bring everything in. So uh, Black Pearl was was started here in uh, in Brisbane, Australia, which is up near the top. Yeah, um, it's just to give a weather report. It's about twenty seven degrees at the moment, seven thirty or something in the morning. But uh-huh. um, it's uh, and so we do specialty cheese. Um, we started off bringing caviar into uh, into Australia, hence the name. Black Pearl. Yeah, I was wondering, when did you do that? 
Sorry? When did you do that? What, were you getting uh, Caspian Sea caviar, like, you know, when you could get that? Correct. When you could get it, that's right. And then, of course, um, you know, various rules and regulations sure. uh, came in uh, prohibiting that. So yeah. he then started looking further afield. In fact, one of our biggest uh, suppliers for the last 25 years has been Sterling, uh, based in America, of course. Interesting. Yeah, it's a easy. Fantastic company. Yeah. I used to work for Petrosian for a very little bit of time, mm-hmm. so I know I yep. know caviar really well. They ruined me for life. Once I had Iranian mm-hmm. caviar, I was like, okay, so why the hell would anyone ever eat anything else? I don't understand. I oh, know, absolutely. <laughs> and look, and we feel the same way. It's just terrible. But uh, So we source caviar from all over the world yeah. these days, which is sort of getting off the subject. Of I know, bit, I'm but, sorry. But, I just, but I'm Italy sorry. And Italy, and, uh, Italy, I should say, and China and Poland yeah. and... And uh, even the UAE, believe it or not. But, uh, yeah. All right, man. I'm going to bring you back. Back to Cheese Legends because I can't get enough of those. <laughs> I need you to tell me one more before we get out of here. Just one more, like, epic story that, that just blew your mind that you just, you know, you couldn't you couldn't leave this little conversation with me without telling the listeners about. All right. Look, so, the, I mean, everyone's heard of the blue ones, so I won't possibly go into those, although I do love, you know, the discovery of... Uh, of the blue of, cheese. Of great sure. cheeses like, um, like Rockford. But, but look, everyone uh, dislikes, I won't say hate, everyone dislikes the tax man, and we always do what we can to, uh, to limit what we, uh, how we're exposed to the tax man. Sure. And I suppose that goes back as far... As, as the earliest cheesemakers on the world. And, and so there are a couple of products, namely a, a great product from Italy called Tetson de Barolo, uh-huh. which is a magnificent hard cheese. It's covered and it's in... covered yeah. in must. Uh-huh. And, and the know idea well. of that was that when they, when they produced their hard cheeses and they would go off uh, and and trade with their nearest neighbours. They would have yep. to go, you know, if you used a toll road, you would have to go through it and you would pay a tax on the goods that you had. So they would hide these rounds of cheese yeah. in these barrels of must. And, yep. and must was just useless. I mean, the, the totally. wine, the goodness had been taken out of it. The must was just the residue from the winemaking process. It was yeah. absolutely useless to anyone except the fertiliser. And so they would hide these cheeses in the barrels of must. But by the time you took them out after a month or whatever the case may be, Phenomenal. you know, this cheese had turned into a completely different cheese, yeah. absolutely different taste, and was sensational. And it's still obviously available today awesome. as a Tetson de Barolo. And, and, of course, another one, the French classic uh, Reblochon. Yes. Uh, a beautiful cheese. And Reblochon, I'm led to believe, uh, means to pinch. Yeah. Um, so, so you would milk a little bit so and show the taxman that's all we've got, and then after he'd left, you would milk the rest of the Yeah, drain the other. Awesome. That's awesome. I, I love that. I've heard two different versions of that first one that you told me, um, uh, because they, they also call any cheese that's been immersed in wine, ubriaco, like the drunkard's cheese. And I heard that in Italy um, that that they were hiding the cheese from brigands and also uh, hiding the cheese from soldiers during the occupation in uh, World War II. That they were uh, that both of those versions I've heard from different Italian cheesemakers. But Italians have a lot of interesting stories, a lot of interesting <laughs> stuff. So that's true. It depends, it depends on, on the, who you're on talking the time to. Of the night they tell you, you know, it is, and it depends on who you're talking to. Because if that guy told you, it's got to be a lie. But if you go to this other guy, that 
that's the truth. And I'm like, well, what about if they're Absolutely. both telling me the same fucking story? <laughs> and that'd be very interesting. And um, and I got one more quick, quick question because I just love it. I've always told people um, that one of the che- legends of cheese discovery um, is I always tell this story about this traveler in the Gobi Desert that's wandering through there with a skin of goat's milk. And when he gets through to the other side because of the, the acids, um, you know, the... Because of the enzymes the, in the, the goat's stomach, enzymes. yeah, yep. and it's it's curdled the milk, and he has yogurt, and that's how the, that's like a that's like a seven thousand year old thing, and like that's like some of the first known cheeves ever made. Have you heard of that one? I have, and look, and I still believe that is the origin, Me the too. true origin of cheese. Me because, too, because ah, the, love the, you. The, an early uh, an early pannikin or, or vessel to contain water or wine Skin. was always the insides of a, of a, of a beast. Totally. Um, and if, if that stomach, which has obviously got an, a, a natural opening one end and a natural opening the other, so you, yeah. you close off the other opening, you've got a waterproof bag uh, that can you sling around your neck and, and carry. And inside, if they had have used the full stomach of a, of a calf, for example, that would have had the magic of rennet, yes, exactly. uh, which is this uh, fabled enzyme. Stuff. Are still in that stomach, and that was the thing that would have reacted with the milk yep. in a hot day, and without a doubt, it would have turned it into very, very basic curds and whey. Yeah. And when he when he undid that cork and 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 uploaded it to his to his mouth, then just a little very pale green liquid um, would have come out, which would have been whey, and the and the curd would have retained in the stomach. So yeah. I think it's very, very plausible. Thank you, man. I bet- you have it made me feel a little less dumb today. <laughs> wow, man. It's, it's been a lovely chat. I've yeah. been across the other side of the world. It's yeah. been very nice. What a fun show. Thank you, Peter, for joining us on the show today to like share some of your stories. I really appreciate it. And uh, thanks for to everyone for listening today. And I'm Greg Blaze. We'll be back next week with more Cutting the Curd. Thanks a lot, man. Sensational, Greg. All the best. Bye-bye. Ciao. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.